Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, I think I'll go ahead and get us started. Um, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the, okay, I'm the uh, faculty director or the or research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program where we are committed to closing gender gaps in areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And one of the ways that we try to achieve this mission is by connecting uh, researchers with practitioners through this seminar. And our reach of this seminar is ever increasing. So if you, have, if you think that you're just sitting in a small seminar right now, you're actually in a much larger online community. This seminar, our, our um, podcasts have been downloaded more than 11,000 times. So I'd like to also start off by welcoming our podcast community, uh, <laughs> joining us virtually. Um, in this small room. Uh, we'd like to ask that all cell phones get turned off and also that um, any audience questions um, be on topic and posed in the form of a question and related to the presenter's research. So particularly when we've got a lot of people listening into a podcast, it's really helpful if we're kind of, we, we do our best to um, stay directed and on topic uh, and have the exchange um, interpretable for others who are just listening in. I am um, very excited to introduce our presenter today, who's Katie Kaufman. Katie is a, uh, she's a graduate of Williams College, but also uh, she did her PhD uh, here in economics at Harvard. Um, she is a professor currently at Ohio State University. She's also the associate editor of the Journal for European, um, uh, of the European Economic Association. Uh, both Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School are desperately trying to hire her right now, so we also want to have a very stimulating seminar uh, with that aim, and, um, and why don't I just launch us um, with that, and we can give her lots of applause. So I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I've been fortunate to present for this audience before, and it's always one of my favorite places to come because uh, it's such a great crowd and diverse background. So. I'm going to be talking to you today about uh, laboratory evidence on sponsorship. And this is joint work with Nancy Baldiga, who is uh, not only a great accountant, but also my mom. So uh, she is an academic, and her background is in thinking about work-life balance in professional service firms. And that's been the focus uh, of both her teaching and, and the past uh, books she's written. Uh, and so we started chatting sort of in a, you know, just mom-daughter way about these types of programs and it morphed into a research project. So this has been a really special experience for me and I'm really excited to talk to you uh, about the evidence we, we have. If I can. What should I be pointing at? Yes. Ah, the magic. Okay. I think this, this slide is going to be uh, not surprising to people in this crowd, but just thinking about broad source motivation uh, in a variety of areas, we see this sort of leaky pipeline problem. So particularly if we think about competitive careers like academia or these professional service firms, uh, we've done a pretty good job of closing gender gaps in entry cohorts. So if you think about graduate classes or even people joining a firm at the beginning of their careers, uh, some of these are close to 50-50 at this point. And in particular in public accounting firms uh, where gender issues have been sort of a, a big priority, um, they are getting uh, the 50% of the entry cohort to be women. 
But if you look at the partner stage, right, the numbers look uh, much more disappointing, maybe. So only 19% of partners in uh, these public accounting firms are women. Uh, and so there's been a big question of what's going on between this entry stage and the partnership stage. And you can imagine <laughs> lots of things that might matter here. Uh, and one question that as academics we're wrestling with, but also firm leaders are wrestling with, is what can we do to sort of bring this 19% number up to closer to the entry cohorts? Because at least in the professional service industry, they really care about having sort of a diverse set of partners and, and getting these women through the pipeline. So one proposed solution that's come sort of from the firm side and not the academic side is these sponsorship programs. So let me tell you a little bit more about what these look like in the fields. So a sponsor, and I'm drawing heavily here from the Sylvia Ann Hewlett book, is going to be someone who sort of advocates for a protege and importantly is going to take a stake in their success. So this is going to be in contrast sort of to a traditional mentorship model that you might think about as being encouraging, nurturing, connecting, and more transactional. Right? So this is something like, I choose you, and I'm going to put you out there, and if you succeed, I succeed. If you don't succeed, I'm going to pay some penalty for that within the firm. Okay. So if you think about the various things that a sponsor might do, in addition to sort of taking a stake in their success, part of that is going to be sort of increasing the visibility of this person. So think about sending them on challenging assignments or putting them in front of clients. Um, Within the firm, advocating for that protege in, in promotion meetings and, and uh, compensation meetings. Uh, and then also getting that protege sort of plugged into professional networks. So I want to say right up front that I think all of these things are potentially really important and we're not going to be focused on these parts of sponsorship, right? So we're going to be thinking about sort of the first part of sponsorship, which is this taking a stake in their success part and trying to understand what that might mean and how that might motivate employees. So importantly here, right, the sponsor and the protege, in a sense, we're, we're trying to align their incentives by linking their payoffs, right? So the fact that the sponsor is going to benefit if the protege succeeds is sort of doing this alignment of saying everyone's got something on the line. I want to see you sort of advance through the pipeline. So I think just this is uh, connecting it to sort of where did this come from if it didn't come from academia. You can think about professional service firms as operating sort of in an apprenticeship model, right? So there were partners sort of running the firm. Historically, new employees would come in, they'd sort of be taken under the wing, and that was a way that they got brought up and then made partner, right? Then they recognized that this sort of mechanism worked well. Well, the entry cohort started to get more diverse, and people looked around and say, okay, the people with sponsors tend to be the people who look like our current partners. Right? And that left a lot of new entry cohort people, particularly women and people from other underrepresented backgrounds, without sponsors. Right? So there was this movement to try and formalize these programs in a way where we could assure that the benefits of sponsorship maybe reach a, a more diverse set of entry-level employees. So <coughs> I think th there's been a uh, sort of a large amount of popular attention for these sponsorship programs and some success stories that you can think of as sort of anecdotal or cross-firm uh, with some claims that sponsorship has been really effective in some firms, right? So if we look at sponsored employees, we think they seem to be more competitive, they're taking more risks, they're bringing in more work, um, and maybe feel more confident about their chances within the firm. Right? The tricky thing here is, is field evidence is really nice in the fact that like, these are real firms and real success stories, uh, but it's really challenging. And, and the problem with sponsorship in particular, right, for me, an experimental economist, is that you've got this big selection problem. 
right? So if you take your best employees, that's who people want to sponsor, right? That's who they choose. They do really well. It's like, okay, well, maybe that person was going to succeed anyways, right? And disentangling those things in the field is just really challenging. So what we're going to do is try and do a lab experiment that sort of solves that selection problem. But to do that, we're going to have to sacrifice a lot of other things, right? So we're going to give you what we think of as being sort of clean evidence on some of the features of sponsorship programs and look at the impact they have in the lab, right? And the idea is sort of looking at two important foundations of sponsorship, trying to see whether they might be effective, whether the effects vary by gender, and then looking back to the field and thinking about, given what we learned in the lab, how might we tweak these programs or, or design sort of a field evaluation of the programs in a smart way? So the two features we're going to focus on, we're going to call the beliefs channel and the payment time channel. So the beliefs channel I want you to think of as the effect of sort of having someone say to you, I want to sponsor you, right? I, I chose you, I care about you, I have some vote of confidence, I'm going to earn money from your performance, you know, this, this actually means something, right? And the second channel is the payment time channel. And this is the transactional part, right? This idea that if you do well, I'm going to do well, right? And this linking of protege and sponsor payments. So we want to sort of vary these things exogenously, right, and get employees of sort of all ability into these two channels and see the impact these things have and focus on across gender differences. Right? So the idea here, of course, is not to prevent sort of final evidence on whether sponsorship works, but instead to say, if these are sort of things we think are important in the design of sponsorship programs, what do they say when we isolate them cleanly? Right? And, and if we see that they're not effective or less effective, then that's going to tell us that if sponsorship is effective in the field, it must be a more complex story, right? Maybe it's about the networking. Maybe it's about the long-term relationship, right? It's about a richer set of things than we're capturing in the lab. And I'm going to be completely open to sort of that interpretation of the data, right? But it would be nice to say, maybe these things work really well in the lab, right? And then we could argue, gee, the payment time part seems to be really important, right? And let's include that in sponsorship programs as we design them in the field. Finally, I have to tell you how we're going to think about sort of evaluating sponsorship working or not, right? So th this is a challenge in the field. It's less of a challenge in the lab, but still something to think carefully about, right? So how do we know that you were sort of impacted by sponsorship? We're going to focus in particular on competitiveness. This is something that in professional service firms, they tell us is important, right? You have to be sort of willing to compete against other employees, right? Compete for clients, go out and win business. Right? And we're also going to focus on earnings in the lab, which are going to be sort of a function of both the competitiveness you show and the performance you show in this task. These are things that are importantly easy to incentivize and easy to measure, right? And we actually care about them. So all three things are, are sort of nice and, and important. All right. So I'm going to pause. So this is sort of the field framing as sponsorship. And now I'm going to re-motivate the project from a different angle. Right? And then you can choose your favorite motivation for the project. Right? So an entirely different way of seeing this project, I think, is to think about the experimental evidence on competitiveness. Right? So starting with the work of Muriel Niederle, we know there's a gender gap in competitive preferences. So both performance under competition when you're forced in, we have evidence that men outperform women in those competitive environments. But then also, given the choice to opt into competition, which is going to be the competitiveness that we talk about, right, we see that women opt into competition less often than men, conditional on having sort of similar ability and similar beliefs about their ability. So this evidence has been around for the last uh, 10 years or so. 
right? And a big literature has emerged in terms of thinking about how can we actually address those gender gaps in competitiveness, right? What, what can we do to impact the competitive preferences of men and women? Right, so in particular, some of the things that have been thought about is sort of institutional changes. Right, so think about if you want to do something here, you can change the women or you can change the institutions. Right, I don't have a good set of tools for changing the women, I think, but I can think really carefully about changing the institutions. Right, how do we tweak the environment in a way that you might push on certain buttons that get people to react in a different way? So changing the institutions, people thought about affirmative action. Right, so now it's a competitive environment where you either have to be the most successful person or the most successful woman, right? We're gonna give some extra points there. Um, or providing feedback, right? So maybe this is just an environment where you don't know how good you are, but now we're gonna give you some feedback and maybe if you knew better your own ability, you would make sort of more rational choices about competing or not. So one way of thinking about this paper on sponsorship is looking at a different form of institutional change. Right, so if we think about the gender gap in competitiveness and we want to know, is there a tool we could use to close this gender gap? One way might be the implementation of a sponsorship program. Right, and so we're going to explore this as an institutional change in the world of competitive tournaments and ask whether this might reduce the gender gap in competitiveness. Katie, before you move on, yeah. do you remember what the findings were in the feedback literature? I'm just curious. Yeah, this is a little mixed, I think. Mm. So. Um, you can think of feedback sort of on a spectrum, right, where the one end of the spectrum is I tell you, you absolutely had the best performance with no uncertainty, you would make more money by competing, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. That form of feedback, maybe unsurprisingly, is pretty successful, right? So, so you can get to the stage, right? Or you could, and, but the challenge is, when is that type of feedback really available, right? Mm -hmm. I, I would love to know with certainty what the outcome's going to be. A lot of times we just don't, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the, these other studies that have provided sort of noisier feedback, relative feedback, have been somewhat less successful in closing the gender gap, although move in that direction. They're not widening the gap. Yeah. Um, but I, I would describe this evidence as sort of mixed and leaning towards stronger interventions having stronger effects. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you what our experimental design is. This is going to be a lab experiment that looks a lot like the original Niederle-Westerlin 2007 design. So if you're familiar with that paper, this is going to look really familiar to you. So it's going to have four rounds of performance in a number-adding task. Right? So in each round of this experiment, if you're a participant in our lab, you're going to have four minutes to solve as many addition problems as you can. Right? These addition problems are going to ask you to sum up five two-digit numbers. You might have scrap paper in front of you, and then you're going to enter your answers into the computer. You're going to do as many as you can within the given time, and the incentives are going to vary by round, right? And I'm going to use this number of problems solved correctly as my measure of performance and look at how performance is responding to these incentives. So the challenge in the lab environment, right, is to implement sponsorship in some reasonable way, right? And this is what we wrestled with the most. So what we decided to do is use what we call participant sponsors. So these are actually participants who come to the lab. They're going to serve as the sponsors in our environment. Right? And we're going to use them, again, to talk about these two particular channels. Right? So we want sponsors in at least some of our treatments to have the opportunity to choose someone right? in a way that actually signals some vote of confidence. Right? So it's going to be a really noisy form of feedback. It's not going to be that much information about how good you are, but you're going to get that sort of, think of it as like the emotional pat on the back. Right? Someone's chosen me, they care about me, and that meant something in the context in which they were choosing. And the second channel that the participant sponsors are going to be useful for turning on is the payment time channel. 
right? So we can actually have someone in the lab whose earnings are going to depend upon the choices and performance you have, right? So um, we're also going to take advantage, and I'm going to go through this carefully, of trying to avoid the selection problems by, by making these sponsors make particularly strategic choices. And I'm going to talk about that in detail. That's sufficiently vague for now. So round one. They're going to have this piece rate baseline. This is everyone in the lab. They're going to have four minutes. They're just going to earn 50 cents per problem they solve. So it's important to know that at the end of the period, they're not getting feedback about <coughs> relative performance or absolute performance, but you're entering numbers on a screen. So you might have a rough idea of how many problems you solved, but you're not going to know that with certainty. So round one ends. Now we want to get a sense of your baseline performance under competition. Right? So this is the forced competition environment of something like Nisi, Niederli, Rustichini. Right? So we're going to force you to compete. Okay. We're going to tell you that for all participants in the session, there's usually a room of about 36 <coughs> people, right? we're going to compare everyone's performance in round two. If you're in the top 25%, you're going to earn $2 per problem solved. And if you're in the bottom 75%, you're going to earn nothing. These are math problems. These are, yeah, summing two-digit numbers. So they're, they're math, but they're not sophisticated math. Do participants see each other? Uh, so the, the, this is run at Claire. Um, so it's a, a classroom with computer stations and partitions. So you can sort of, you're waiting out in the hallway with people. You all walk in, you sit down at a desk. So you have, I would say, a general sense of the gender, ethnic composition of the lab around you, um, but you wouldn't necessarily have taken sort of a hard count of, of who else is there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. it, so I, I should point out, too, that this is unlike past competition studies. Um, past competition studies, is a small detail, but I think it's actually important for our context. Um, past competition studies have randomized people into small groups. So you can think about a group of four or a group of six, and you get compared within that group. We're going to compare you to the whole lab. So in a way, that's a little bit less noisy, right? It's, it's less dependent on who the particular people in your group were, right? You can imagine being very talented, but ending up in a very talented group, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's not beneficial for you to compete. Here, since there are 36 of you, not four or six of you, right, if you're good, you're very likely to end up in that top 25%. And I think you'll see that this in itself, which was not a focus of the paper as we held constant cross-treatment, is actually a little bit effective in getting women to compete more, right? It's just taking out the sort of one-on-one -on -one or one-on-four sort of feel of the competition. So that's just a sidebar. So round three and round four are really going to be the data we care about. So think about those first two rounds as giving us sort of controls for your performance in these two different environments. So we want to know sort of what your performance is in each of these worlds, but what we are really going to care about is the choice you make in round three and round four. So in round three, we introduce this choice. You're going to be able to choose between the two incentive schemes you saw in round one and round two. So this is a lot like meterly Vesterlin, right? So it, rather than have them make one binary choice, again, that, that's sort of the, the typical paradigm, we're going to have them make a series of binary choices so you can sort of trace out a demand curve for competitiveness. Right? This is going to be helpful in terms of power because you could imagine if it's a zero one, I want to compete or I don't want to compete, we might nudge you towards being more competitive, but it's not clear we can get you over that sort of extrinsic margin of getting you to switch one to the other. Right? Here, we're going to give you a series of choices where option A is this piece rate from round one, right? 50 cents for sure for each problem solved. 
And option B is going to be wage B for each correct answer, but only if you're in the top 25%. Right? And what we're going to do is vary wage B. Right? So the, the standard paradigm would be uh, one choice where wage B was $2, and you would just choose between the two. We're going to vary wage B between $1 and $3 in 25 cent increments. And those are going to appear as nine ordered choices where we expect you, in all likelihood, to switch once within that set. Right? So you might not compete for really low wage B when the payoffs to winning the tournament are low, but as wage B gets higher, we expect a lot of participants will switch at some point and switch once. That's a, that's an important point. So no, they haven't received any feedback yet. So <laughs> they've experienced round two, right? They they felt what it was like to compete, but they haven't learned whether they won the competition or not. Okay, so I want to point out we're uh, adapting another design feature that's common in the literature, and this is to determine whether you win this tournament in round three. So let's say you chose option B. We're going to compare your round three performance to the distribution of round two performances in the lab. Right? And this is a really clever design decision that Niederlee Westerlin made originally, and it has a couple of nice features. So one is that you could imagine one reason to not compete is I worry about crowding out other people's ability to win this nice tournament payoff. Right? I know I'm really good, but I wouldn't want to take that away from you all. Right? I'll let you guys compete and earn that. Right? It's a social preferences story. Right? Well, that goes away here, because in principle, all of us could choose to compete in round three. And as long as we beat the 25 percentile from round two, we could all win the tournament payoff. Right? So my decision to compete or not is not crowding out anyone else's payoffs or impacting anyone else's payoffs in any way. Right? So it's really about you and your preferences. The other nice thing here, too, is that it's not a function of who chooses to compete in round three. Right? You're always competing against the whole session independent of the decisions they make in round three, right? Because we already had everyone compete in round two. So those, those things are nice, and so we continue uh, to maintain that. They're going to compete against this set of round two performances. Again, they don't know what these are, right? This is just something that's happened, but they don't know what the distribution looks like. Okay. So they make these nine binary decisions between option A and option B as we increase option B, or wage B. Um, and then we're going to randomly select one of those for the lab level. Okay, so everyone has the same one selected. We thought that was nice just so that everyone's incentives were sort of the same. If there was a question, we could answer that question clearly for everyone. Um, and we're going to announce which one it was. And the reason we did that is we wanted you to know in round three sort of what the incentives were you were facing. Right, so we're going to tell you we selected wage B of $2.50. You chose option A for that one or you chose option B for that one. So that's what your incentives are going forward. So everyone knows the outcome of that randomization entering this round three okay. for themselves personally, not for the whole lab. Okay. So then they're just going to do the same thing again. They're going to have four minutes to solve these addition problems. So in this round, we can look at their choice, right? What the lowest wage B was that they were willing to accept to compete. Okay. And also their performance conditional on the choice they made. Questions about that part? Okay. So importantly, up to this stage, every single participant in our experiment experiences the same three rounds. Right? So all of this data, I'm going to have as a nice within subject control for what comes next. 
right? So I know absent our intervention, how you perform under peace rate, how you perform under competition, and the choices you would make about willingness to compete in round three. So now we're gonna intervene, right? And we're gonna intervene across subject and look at outcomes in round four relative to these round three choices. Okay, so here's the intervention, and this is a little complicated, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go slowly through it. So we tell everyone round four is going to be a repeat of round three. Right? You're going to make these same choices about willingness to compete. You're going to have another opportunity to solve math problems. Okay. But at this point, there are going to be some, some new information that arises. So after round three, three people in the lab are going to be randomly chosen to be sponsors. And this is just seat number. So these aren't like particularly talented or untalented people. It's just like, oh, this seat was chosen. You are now a sponsor. The sponsors are told they're going to sit out round four. They won't be solving problems. And instead, they're going to have the chance to earn money based upon other participants' behavior. Now, we use the word protege in our talk here. They don't see these words protégés, okay? You can see sponsor? The, they, so <coughs> the sponsors may not see the word sponsor, but I'm going to tell you what we tell the participants, and those are said as sponsors. Um, so everyone else in the lab is a potential protege. And we're going to vary this assignment to sponsorship and what sponsorship means across our treatments. Okay. So this key design challenge, which I previewed, right, is there's a really natural tension between two things. The first is that you like to have perfectly random assignment to sponsorship, right, where independent of your ability, you might get sponsored. But you would also like sponsorship to mean something, at least in some of the treatments, right, that it means something that you got chosen. So we're going to do a, a good job addressing this one. We're going to basically, I think, argue we're getting rid of the selection problem. But that means we're going to have to give up a little bit on the second bullet, right? I, I don't want to not give up as in quit, but we're going to sacrifice a little bit on the second bullet to achieve the first bullet point. So what we're going to do is sort of strategically construct binary choices for sponsors. So in sponsorship treatments where you might get chosen, the sponsors are going to see a list of binary choices between two participants, and they're going to have to make a choice from that set of two. Okay? And by sort of constructing these in a reasonable way, we can assure similar ability distributions across unsponsored and sponsored participants, but still say truthfully to participants, someone has chosen you from a set of two. Right? Someone has chosen you based upon your performance, they were incentivized to choose people they thought would earn more money. So I'll show you exactly how we do that. So what we do is we construct this algorithm. We rank all participants by the sum of their scores in round one and two. Okay, so we just rank everyone. This happens in live time in the lab. We then feed that rank order list into an algorithm that constructs series of binary choices for us to hand to the sponsors. The sponsors are going to see the participant number, no gender information, right? This is, this is just a number like participant 202, okay? And their round one and round two score for each participant, right, in, in the choice set. So a sponsor typically makes about eight binary choices for us. So they see set one, set two, set three, and they're asked to make a choice from each one. And they're told in these treatments that a coin flip is going to determine their payment, right? So they're going to make these choices. Then we're going to flip a coin, and if the coin comes up heads, they're going to earn 25 cents for each problem the person they chose solves, but only if they chose to compete and were in the top 25%. Okay. 
So here we're incentivizing sponsors to choose people they think will do well, right? Maybe place in the top 25%, and will choose to compete, yes? And the idea here is not that sponsors have any information that might lead them to think who's gonna compete or not, but that when we give this information to the protégés, <coughs> they know the sponsors only get paid if you compete, right? And this is, again, going back to the field motivation we started with, right? You don't do well if the protégé you chose never goes out and wins any business, right? They can be really talented, but you have to be willing to compete. So we're directly trying to incentivize an increase in competitiveness among the protégés. So your algorithm, I assume, is creating matched pairs? Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an example of the kind of thing we're doing. I won't show you the actual dry thing, but I'll, I'll show you an example. Okay, so the reason we do this coin flip, right, tails, they're not gonna earn any money based upon their performance. This happens after they choose, right? So in these treatments where sponsors are choosing, at the time, they thought they were potentially earning money, right? So they had some incentives to choose people they thought would do well and compete. But we're gonna have treatment variation based upon whether the payment tying channel is turned on or turned off, right? So choices made under the same conditions, but in one, the payments of the sponsors and protégés are linked, and in the other, they're not. Right, and we're going to be able to tell participants which arm they're in. Katie? Yeah? Is there any interaction between the sponsors and the protégés? No. The, do the protégés even know who in the room their sponsor is? This is all completely... Right. So we are totally turning off any sort of you know, pep talk feature, networking feature, anything like that. It's completely anonymous. You are just, and I'm going to show you the language the participants saw, you're going to find out Someone sponsored you or someone is not, and here's what that means. It's just a vote of confidence. Exactly. That's exactly the language we like. Yes. Do the sponsors need to make any decisions after the coin flip takes place? They don't. So at that point, um, that the sponsors have their list of who they're sponsoring. They don't know who those people are. They sit around in round four. But I'll tell you, they're very happy because if the coin comes up heads, they make a killing in round four, so people solve a lot of problems. They have eight potential protégés, so the sponsors usually walk out very happy, but they don't have to do any work in round four. Um, so <clears throat> I just want to make sure we have the sequence right and understand what the protégés knows. Yeah. So the sponsors now decide want to sponsor X or not. Then, then <coughs> there's a coin flip, um, and then I learn that either what I just said matters or it doesn't matter at all. And then the protege does whatever he or she does, and what does she know about me or yes, my existence? Hopefully, um, I'm going to give you one more thing on the algorithm, and then uh -huh. I'm going to talk about oh. exactly that. Okay, so this algorithm with these binary choices, here's what we're trying to do, right? We're going to try and get two similarly talented individuals, one of which gets assigned a sponsorship, and one of which doesn't, right? So we want pseudo random assignment, yes? but. If we just allowed on complete randomness, we would have good protégés that get selected and less good protégés who don't. So we're trying to get around that. So what we do, right, the algorithm might do something like this. It might present a binary choice that asks you to choose between the 11th and the 18th best participant. Now, of course, they don't see these ranks. They just see the scores, right? And we expect, given the incentives they face, that that person's going to choose to sponsor the 11th, not the 18th. Another sponsor might see the choice between the 12th and the 4th best, right? And there we expect the 4th best to get chosen. And then in our data set, what we're going to see is that the 11th and 12th best participant probably had nearly identical round 1 and round 2 performances, 
and yet one is very likely to be sponsored and one is very unlikely to be sponsored. Right? So it's going through a series of things like that to generate these distributions to the two treatments. Now this comes at a cost, right? Because the signal then of being sponsored may not be that informative. And this gets to what we're actually able to tell the participants. Right? So the protégés get this information. They don't know about the algorithm or the binary choices. They know what the sponsor's incentives were at the time they chose, right? which is they knew they would get paid 25 cents if the coin came up heads, but they don't know what the choice set was. Right? So I think Bridges' term vote of confidence is exactly right. right. Someone chose me. I don't really know what that means, but someone chose me. Right? And, and we're going to compare that to a treatment in which the sponsors and the protégés know sponsorship was completely randomly assigned. They just got a list of people, and this is who you were randomly paired with. Okay, so let me walk you through what that means for our treatments, because there's a, a lot of things going on here. So these two treatments are the ones I just explained to you, right, where the sponsors actually choose people. In some cases, the coin comes up heads. Uh, uh, I think this is tails, but the coin comes up tails, and the payments aren't actually tied. In some cases, the coin comes up in a way that the payments do get tied, right, so identical sponsor choices, but the coin flip determines whether payment tying comes on or not. This third one is different sessions where sponsors are just told, here's who you're sponsoring. And we just randomly assign the people in the room to sponsors. This, calling this, this is kind of like a control treatment, but it's a little bit funny. So unsponsored people are a combination of people who were either just randomly never presented to be chosen, right? So it was never the case that you could have been selected. <coughs> and they were presented, but weren't chosen, right? So that's like that 12th best participant from the last slide. They're all in this unsponsored condition, and we don't give them any information. So we walk around the lab and we give out handouts, and the handout is informing you of whether you're sponsored or not, how the, whether you were chosen or randomly assigned, and whether the sponsor's payments depend on your performance or not, and exactly in what way. And the other people, these unsponsored, also get a handout. So we walked around in order and made sure the handouts went out all at the same time. And the handout just says, round four is going to repeat round three. Yeah, Bridget. That, that was my So they don't know, not only, they don't know that this sponsorship stuff is going on for anyone else. Right. That, and um, we actually, so we were a little bit worried about information leakage. So yes, this is our main control treatment, which we're interpreting as not the impact of sponsorship on the unsponsored, but instead the absence of a sponsorship program. Um, we actually re-ran a control in which we just ran the experiment round three, round four with no intervention <coughs> for anyone in the room, and it looks indistinguishable from these unsponsored people. Unsponsored. So what level, um, how important is that, how is it, because I'm thinking about the idea of a math problem. Some people might feel more confident about math than others. How does that play, like the prior confidence play into this? Yeah, that's great. And so I, I didn't talk about that in the design. Um, but prior to their participation in each of these rounds, we asked them to guess their quartile. And that's going to be incentivized. So they're going to get a dollar if they correctly guess their quartile. So we're actually going to be able to look at sort of the heterogeneous effects of sponsorship by your ex-ante confidence and how your confidence responds to being sponsored or not. So that's a great question, and we'll get to it. 
Okay, so once we understand the treatments, round four is really easy, right? So the, the protégés are going to get informed. They're told about the incentives. They're told whether they were chosen or just randomly assigned. And the unsponsored protégés get nothing. Okay. Um, so now we just repeat round three. They make these same incentive choices again, right? So this 50 cents for sure, or wage B as wage B increases. So we can compare, right, the change in competitiveness across round three and round four. This is too small to be helpful, but this is a, a diagram, right? So baseline piece rate, baseline tournament, round three where they make the choices, intervention happens, round four, right? So again, I, I'm going to stress this point. Everyone in the experiment is identical up until this point, right? So we can use all of this to sort of compare really similar people in regressions, right? We can say they had similar experiences up until the point the intervention occurred, and then our empirical approach is going to be to compare the choice or performance in round four relative to round three, right? So that's a within subject difference across subjects given their intervention, right? So it, 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 this is like a difference in difference. So just logistics, this, I think I mentioned it was run at Claire over at the business school in the spring of 2014. Uh, it took about an hour. Uh, I think we made people unreasonably happy. We paid way too much, so our calculations were a bit off in terms of how good they were at math. They were very good. Um, so we, we randomly choose one round to determine compensation, and they walk out with their earnings from that. So on average, people made $25, uh, but there's a lot of variance. So again, I'm just going to walk you through the, the type of analysis I'm going to do. Right? So here are the three key variables I'm going to talk about. And, and the first one is, is really sort of the most complicated and the most important. Right? So I'm going to talk about this cutoff. And I want you to think about the cutoff as being the lowest wage B at which you are willing to compete. Right? So a lower number means you're more competitive. Right? So think about this is the salary I have to offer you in order to opt in. So if that number's lower, it means you're sort of eager to compete. Okay. So I'm going to compare cutoffs across round three and round four. Right? Performance is straightforward. This is just how many problems you're going to solve in the window. I can compare that across round three and round four. And then earnings, right? So for earnings, remember <coughs> they make nine binary choices, right? Compete or not for all these different wages. I look at the earnings for each choice they made in the nine decisions. Right? Hypothetically, if this one had been chosen, what would your earnings have been? This one. And I average over the nine to come up with an expected earnings measure. Right? So then earnings isn't sensitive to sort of the randomization of which binary choice we actually pulled. So I think I've already said this, so we can skip that. Okay, so just size of the experiment, we have roughly 80 people in our different sponsorship conditions, right? So unsponsored just the vote of confidence, just the payment tying, or the vote of confidence and the payment tying. Roughly equal split of men and women. So here I just want to highlight that this is just a balance table looking at men and women. On sort of the proportion undergrad and year of birth, they look very similar. In terms of the majors they report, this is just self-reported at the end of the experiment. We actually see some variation in this, right? So women are more likely to be a humanities major. Uh, men are more likely to be a math major, slightly. Um, 
we were really interested. I, so I was a high school athlete. My mom was like, I bet competitive people, you know, people who played sports, are more likely to compete. So this is like a you know a pet hypothesis that has nothing to do with the rest of the paper. It turns out, you know, there's actually almost everyone reported playing some competitive sport at some level, so it wasn't actually that useful in identifying variation. Um, but the stuff that actually matters, right? These are the sort of performance measures, right? Now, importantly, I'm comparing changes across round three and round four. Right, so I'm going to be able to control for a lot of these performance differences in my metrics, but it's important to keep in mind that at baseline, the men do a little bit better under the piece rate. When we go to the tournament, the performance difference is still there. And then once we look at these options in round three and round four, we still continue to see a performance difference, and it looks like it may even get stronger over time. Now, of course, this is everyone pooled together. And you know, right, there are all these other things going on. So this difference in itself doesn't mean much, but we're going to think about sort of these performance differences and how they might exacerbate or diminish over time. So a lot of what I'm going to show you is going to be regressions. And in part, that's because I want to make sure that I sort of carefully account for different abilities at the beginning of the experiment. Okay. So here's just, this is competing in round three. So this is before the intervention takes place. Think of this as sort of our baseline competitiveness across men and women. So the numbers on the bottom are these wage Bs. So right, this is, would you compete if the tournament wage was 100 cents for each correct problem if you're in the top 25% and nothing otherwise? Option A is 50 cents for sure for each problem. So this is a, a very competitive person might compete here. By the time we get to 300 cents, right, many, many more people are competing. So the red bars are the women, the blue bars are the men. You see at every wage B, there is a gender gap, right? But the gender gap varies within the space. So again, the standard wage to offer within the literature would be this 200 cents, right? So 25% get paid, so you choose a tournament payment that's four times as big as the piece rate. Here, this is a, a marginally significant gender gap at 200 cents. The gender gap is actually larger at something like 150 cents. So when I say I think it matters that we paid them relative to the whole lab rather than just relative to like a randomly chosen group of four, I'm sort of looking in part at this difference at 200 cents, which is much smaller than the difference that we've seen in these, these other studies. So that's just a hypothesis. Okay, so this is sort of the baseline gap in competitiveness. Right? So the average male cutoff in round three is 186 cents. The average cutoff for women is 202 cents. This is a marginally significant difference, but it's sort of mass, sort of big differences at some of the wage B levels. So in particular, for these sort of below median wage Bs, we see bigger gender gaps. And then again, a significant gap emerges for that highest wage, where basically the men are starting to tick up and the women are leveling them. Okay. So uh, just summary statistics from round three in terms of things we're going to think about measuring. Right? The men do outperform the women in round three. So they're solving about one more problem on average during this four minute window. Uh, they're gonna out earn the women in round three, right? And earnings importantly are a function of both your performance, but then also the choices you make, right? So if you're good and you choose to compete, you're gonna earn more than if you're good and you choose not to compete. So men are earning about $11 on average and women are earning about $8 on average. This is a big significant difference. And then even once we condition on performance, right, the gap is, it shrinks by about uh, two-thirds, right? So a third of the gap seems to be driven by earning, uh, sorry, a third of the gap seems to be driven by choices rather than performance. That's this 100 cents number. 
and that could be two things. That could be men who shouldn't compete competing, yes, and women who should compete not competing. Right. You've so both. those move in in opposing directions, yes. right? And and yes, both go on. So. Yeah. Um, there are many, both men and women, who of compete course. that shouldn't be competing, of course, of course. but more men than women, same. yes. Yeah. And there are some women who should be competing who aren't. That's exactly right. Okay, so now we're going to think about the actual intervention. Can we go back there just for one second? Mm -hmm. but, but it does, the significance goes away. So yes. this suggests there's this huge variance, even if there's this mean difference. That's exactly so right. it really suggests that a lot of this is based in performance expectation. It's sort of grounded in rational performance expectation, right? I think that's right. And it's also, you know, we can't quite cleanly separate, like, the performance from the choices part of it, because you could easily have a model where if you're choosing to compete, then you're going to ratchet up your performance more because you only earn if you're in that top 25%. Yeah. So even though I can sort of piece out performance, I can't really disentangle them completely. Um, so, I mean, what you could do is condition on people who made the same choice and look at performance and things like that. Um, I'm not sure we've actually done that analysis in this paper, but uh, that would be one approach to doing it. But yeah, a, a big part of the story here is the performance part. Katie, I mean, um, building on Hannah's question, although slightly different, but um, I, you can't in your paper, but have other people just look at gender differences in learning? over time, because of course that's always what's yes. happening, just because you have to have the four <coughs> rounds, obviously. Right. So I presume others before have done the same treatment condition over four rounds, just to see whether maybe men um, start up being better, and then learn faster, and therefore the differential could go up over yeah, time. Yeah, you know, I don't know a paper who does that, but it's a, it's it's a, a totally question. reasonable concern. It's a totally boring yes. question. Right? No, nobody, I mean, would, no, I mean, nobody would write a paper on it necessarily, but... Uh, but it could compound the competitiveness measure. <laughs> that's right. Um, so. Fortunately, in our design, what we're going to care about, right, if so if people are sort of getting better over time, and it doesn't have to do with the incentive parts, right, this is the boring part of the story, just performance changes over time, what's nice about what we can do is we have round three and round, round four performance for people in the unsponsored treatment, right, so what we're going to do is look at that change and sort of norm everything to the changes that happen in that treatment. Right, so if there is stuff like learning or fatigue or any other number of things going on, we're differencing all of that out. And that, that's going to be sort of key to our approach and why we didn't rely on just the within subject round three versus round four. Because there you could fall victim to sort of these other things going on that you don't care about. Okay, so uh, we're going to think about cutoffs, performance, and earnings and how these vary between round three and round four across the different treatments. So first, I just want to show you that our algorithm was semi-successful. Okay, so I'm going to show you that the ability distributions across these different treatments are actually quite similar, right? So we have people of similar ability in all the different cells, and that's going to allow us to do sort of statistical analysis in a reasonable way. Right, so the orange bars are people who are unsponsored, so either weren't chosen or were excluded from the algorithm. Okay, so that we have this like one person who's way out here in terms of their ability. Okay, so that they were not sponsored because they weren't presented to someone. Uh, the belief signal and belief signal and payment time, those are only people who got chosen. Right, so these are the people who suffer from the selection problem. And the purple is the people who were randomly assigned. Right, so there's no selection problem here. So in particular, if, the, if these all look similar, that says we've sort of solved the selection problem in some way, at least on average across these people. And in fact, 
The mean differences in total performance across the three groups are identical, right? So we can't distinguish any of these. But, and I think you might be able to even just eyeball that, the distributions do vary a little bit. So if you do like a KS test of distributions, uh, I think the unsponsored and belief signal are marginally different from each other. Now, in the talk today, I'm not going to deal with that. What we do in the paper is we rerun everything with score fixed effects, and then we rerun everything again where we basically truncate these tails and just look at people in sort of the similar meat of the distribution, and the results don't change at all. Now, I think in part that's because, again, we're sort of norming to their past performance, right? We're controlling for that across conditions. So I think that's why it doesn't work against us too much. Okay, so I'm just reminding you, right, this is what the gap in willingness to compete at different wages looked like in round three. So now we're going to look across the treatments in round four and say, how does this picture change? So for people, and I apologize, I think the, the graph was like larger on the last page, so it's a little misleading. But so here are unsponsored people, and we keep the axes the same for the next four slides. Right, so unsponsored, we see if anything, maybe a slightly smaller gap than we had in round three, and I'll, I'll show you rigorous statistics to sort of confirm these things, but I just want you to get a picture of the data, right? Now let's think about sponsored, right? So what we're hoping is we see sort of a convergence of these lines, maybe we're closing gender gaps. If anything, the belief signal lines seem to be getting farther apart, right? If we go to belief signal, or this is just the payment tying, right, definitely looks farther apart, Belief signal and payment tying has sort of this funny picture where we seem to get everyone to close here, but sort of divergence on either side of that, right? And so what I'm going to do to rigorously analyze this is compute these cutoffs, right? What's the lowest wage at which you're willing to compete? And I'm going to ask, conditional on your round three cutoff, how does your round four cutoff depend on your treatment? Right, so that's this regression. I'm going to predict your cutoff in round four conditional on all the information I have on you up until round three, including your round three cutoff. So this is how does your cutoff change between round three and round four, conditional on the treatment to which you were assigned. So this is everyone. So I'm leaving out the, the interaction terms in this first specification and saying, on average, what's the impact of sponsorship? Lower numbers, remember, lower cutoffs is more willing to compete. I have to stop writing papers like this. It's like the third paper where it's got the sign is like a weird thing to interpret. Okay, right, so in the belief signal, cutoffs are falling by approximately 20 cents. Belief signal payment tying, 26 cents. Payment tying, 20 cents. So this is gonna hold true sort of throughout the results I show you. These are always gonna look pretty similar, right? So we don't see that one channel really works and the other channel doesn't. They seem to have similar effects. I'll show you. They seem to be acting through slightly different channels, which is reassuring, but that on average, the effect is pretty similar. Okay, so the question is, we seem to be succeeding in having people become slightly more competitive, right? These are significant differences. Is it varying by men and women? So now I'm gonna put in the interaction terms. So you can interpret these as the effects of sponsorship on men, right? So these are getting bigger, so now cutoffs are falling by approximately 33 cents across the treatments. In the interaction terms, which for the most part aren't significant, but are directionally positive, right? And what this says is cutoffs are changing less for women than they are for men. So if you wanted the treatment effect for women, which I'm going to show you on the next page, you would add, right, this term and the interaction term. So if we add those, and I just show you graphically, right, here's sort of the increase in competitiveness. I've, I've changed the size so it looks reasonable to you. Right, so men are becoming more competitive by about 30 cents across the three treatments. Women in these two treatments, 
are definitely not changing relative to zero. We can't reject the effect of zero for women, right? And here I think we can only marginally reject zero. So directionally, women seem to be less impacted by the sponsorship interventions than the men. So, right, relative to what we might hope, you remember this statistic from round three, the gap was about 13 cents in terms of cutoffs in round three. Okay. Relative to the, the unsponsored, the gap is increasing to 37 cents in the belief signal treatment, 27 cents in this belief signal and payment time, remember this is the one that's most effective for the women, and to 44 cents in the payment time treatment. Right. So we, we've sort of had an unintended effect of making the gender gap bigger. Okay. So now we're gonna try and understand why, right? Whose choices are actually changing? So you might imagine, I, I think this is what we were imagining going into the program, or going to this project, right? Sponsorship is gonna reach those people who are sort of talented but underconfident, right? It, and when you get that nudge, you're like, oh, you know what, I actually am good, I'm gonna compete. Right, that, that's sort of the, the hope, and we're all laughing now that the, so naive, right? Okay, so, <laughs> right, we wanna ask sort of whether our version of sponsorship is effective for the target population. So importantly, that, and I think this gets back to your question, we have this data on beliefs. We have their believed quartile rank in round three and round four. And importantly, they do this after their choices about competing. So we're trying not to say, choose your quartile, make a decision based on that. This happens in the opposite order. Now they could still be a little bit interde interdependent. So who are the underconfident people? Well, I, I think this is a pattern that holds true across many studies. We have a lot of overconfidence in our sample. Right, so more than half the men think they're in the top quartile. Okay, 34% um, think they're in the second quartile. Like no one thinks they're in the bottom. Okay, the women are overconfident on average too. Uh, the mean believed rank is very different across men and women. Right, so one is the best rank, two is second. Uh, the men are are thinking they're they're much better. Um, and then this is sort of the distribution of whether people are over or underconfident. So not surprisingly, given the numbers you just saw, uh, a little bit less than half the sample for both men and women are overconfident. Okay? Uh, a good chunk are properly calibrated. They guess the correct quartile. And then very few people are underconfident. Right? And so this mean overconfidence is just your guessed rank minus your actual rank. So we see that that's larger for men than for women. Right? So in a sense, this is the gap in confidence conditional on ability. Right, because this is your guess minus the truth. It seems to be driven by the under, women's underconfidence. Right, that this is where the difference is. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, so there are more underconfident women than men, but there aren't that many of them in the sample. Okay, so I think reassuringly for us, we were worried with this sort of vote of confidence treatment. It's weird, you're not getting a lot of information. Are we actually impacting people's beliefs? And we do. So these treatments with the belief signal, the vote of confidence, do significantly increase participants' reported confidence. And this is an incentivized measure. So you're gonna get paid if you correctly guess your quartile. So if this goes up, right, there, it's some sort of credible information that you think you're actually better now, right? So compared to the change in beliefs across round three and round four, right, I'm norming out that control treatment. Uh, participants in the belief signal rank themselves 0.2 quartiles higher, that's significant. And the belief signal and payment time, which is the other treatment with the vote of confidence, 0.17 quartiles higher. Very similar. Um, and we don't significantly impact the people for randomly assigned. Right? So for us, this is sort of a reasonableness check that their beliefs are responding, and they're responding to the thing, thing we think would matter, which is this idea that someone chose you. Okay. 
importantly, these changes in beliefs don't vary with gender. So everyone seems to react to the vote of confidence in a similar way. Uh, just a little bit more on this belief stuff, and I'm not going to show you the regressions, but I want to sort of summarize what you can see out of the regressions. Uh, it is true that the belief signal treatments are sort of reducing the rate of underconfidence. Right? So if we look at underconfidence among those participants in round three, about 18% of them are underconfident. Now only 13% of them are underconfident in round four. So that, that moves a little bit. Okay? And we're not making people more overconfident, also reassuring, okay? but we'll go back to that. And if we think about sort of that regression I showed you with the impact of sponsorship, if I put in beliefs, right, to try and say how much of this is driven by these changes in beliefs, it's about a third of the treatment effect for the two treatments that have the vote of confidence. So beliefs seem to be part of the story. But what I want to show you now is despite the fact that we're moving beliefs and that's part of the story, it's actually really sponsorship is not acting on the people who are underconfident or even the people who were sort of properly calibrated. So what I'm doing here is I'm just going to split the sample into people who are overconfident in round three, guessed a quartile higher than they actually were, versus people who are properly calibrated or underconfident. Okay? So N varies across these a little bit, right? but this is just the impact of the three sponsorship treatments pulled together, the average effect of the sponsorship treatment split by where you are. Okay? One of these bars is not like the other. Right? And, and it's unfortunately not the bar we are hoping to move most dramatically, which is the men who are already overconfident in round three are the ones responding most strongly to the sponsorship intervention. Right? The women, regardless of whether they were overconfident, properly calibrated, or underconfident, really aren't moving a whole lot. And even you know, there are underconfident and properly calibrated men out there, they are also not responding to sponsorship. So this is a little bit discouraging that sort of the nudge that we think is going to help sort of the underconfident people is not impacting them and is sort of working on the people that don't seem to need the nudge, right? The people who are maybe already competing. Did you have a question? Yeah, just a thought. I mean, my immediate yeah. thought of looking at this graph is that it seems, it seems to make sense with a confirmation bias kind of idea behind mm -hmm. it. Right. So... Um, I see information that's consistent with my beliefs of myself and I really react to that and I say I knew I was good, now I'm being told I'm good, I'm even better, versus I don't think I'm very good, I see something inconsistent with that and I sort of underweight it. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, we don't have the ability to sort of test a story like that, but that's certainly consistent with what we see. Okay, so uh, uh, related to that, we just saw the results by confidence. You might think another target population is maybe not people who are underconfident, but just the, the people who are really talented, right? So maybe we want sponsorship to reach the really high ability people because those are the people who sort of stand to gain the most by putting themselves out there, right? Those are the people we want going to win business and, and uh, taking risks and things like that. So now we're going to do the same sort of analysis where we ask how the impact of sponsorship varies with ability, right? So are we reaching high ability people, low ability people? It's not the case that competitiveness is profitable for everyone. Competitiveness is only profitable for the top 25% of the population. Okay. So this is by sort of performance quartile, given your round three performance, okay, before the intervention takes place. Top, and this is increase in willingness to compete in, in sort of sense of cutoffs. No significant impact for men and women in the top quartile. <coughs> Slightly larger impact in the second quartile, 
But the real big effects are coming from sort of these third and fourth quartile individuals. Right? So these are the worst quartile performers, and they're increasing their competitiveness by the most. Right? So this is sort of disconcerting. Again, right, under, we're, we're reaching sort of overconfident, low-ability individuals. And so one question you might ask here, and I, I can't show you the analysis today, but it's in the paper, is that you might wonder whether this is just driven by the fact that they're already competing a lot, so they just can't adjust their cutoff. We can actually do the analysis where we control for what cutoff you reported, right? So two people who both had a cutoff of 175 cents, one was low ability, one was high ability. It's the case that the low ability person is adjusting their cutoff much more than the high ability person. So this doesn't seem to be driven by sort of a censoring effect or something like that. And in the regression, Katie, you have both ability and confidence at some point. So this is... And I can say what the differential impact of both of those are. Uh, so you mean one regression I mean, that sort of conditions both on the yeah. confidence report and the ability reported. I don't know if we put them in together uh, to sort of say which one's more important than the other. Um, we could definitely do that. I'm trying to think. I mean, you might also want to interact too, right? Because what you basically just told us now is, I mean, it could be that this is an interaction between the less good but highly overconfident ones. Mm -hmm. And neither of the two may have an independent effect if you have both in, in there. I, I yeah. mean, I, I have no theory to it. I'm just no, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think. I think. So this for sure is sort of not conditional on beliefs. This yeah. is just about ability. But I think, now, now that I'm thinking about it, the belief stuff I showed you is all conditional on ability. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's the way to think about it, right? So that was the additional effect of beliefs mm -hmm. conditional on ability. Um, so that would be the way of parsing out the two. Um, right, so the, the confidence stuff is sort of saying conditional on having the same ability, we're impacting overconfident versus underconfident people. Um, the question is whether you would flip around the analysis. On, right? on yes. beliefs or, or confidence, yes. what is ability to and Katie, there's one thing that keeps drifting in my mind, and mm -hmm. in some ways it's out of the scope of the paper, but I think it's interesting to think about. You've tried to create a lab study that mirrors the environment. Some parts of the some environment. Some parts of it, yeah. or it, and very effectively, right? As effectively as one really can in lab study. But what, what I keep thinking about is, so we see underperforming, overconfident men still being highly competitive. And then we see that the sort of competitive continues, but the lure is the dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And what we know from most studies done on women, when they list what they want most in their high-performing business environments, it's not dollars. Yeah. And I keep wondering if the study could be run again where the lure is something different. Because what women say they want most is to feel valued mm -hmm. and flexibility. So the study mirrors the outcome that we usually see, or we believe we see, but what would happen if the lure were different? Like if I want underperforming, high-talented women to perform more, in essence, could we find something else that then moves them because the lure isn't quite the lure for them? In essence, we've thrown with our rod, but we put the wrong bait on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean. In some ways, how I think about the sponsorship intervention is, you know, at the, at the baseline, there are monetary incentives to compete if you're high ability, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we think that should be, a, or, you know, before this whole literature, we would think that should be enough to get high ability of people to compete. And what sponsorship is doing is sort of introducing two 
non-personal monetary additional incentives to compete. One is which someone chose you, and maybe mm -hmm. there's like a, a some sort of emotional component of sure. reacting to that and choosing to compete, and that's non-monetary. Um, and the second one is, is monetary, but not for you, which is maybe you don't care about the money. Mm -hmm. But remember here, if you compete and do well, you're generating money for your boss right? yep. or your sponsor. And so I think we were in some ways thinking along those same lines mm -hmm. of, okay, we're not changing the benefits to you or the monetary benefits to you of competing, but we're adding these other sort of right. things that might impact the decision. You should feel good that you're providing this monetary value, which in essence for you, you experience as a social value that you exactly. provided good and, to somebody and else. And I thought, we thought that was a reasonable hypothesis. You know, when we, we were reading about these sponsorship programs, this idea that now your choices are impacting someone else's earnings, that seemed to us a, a plausible channel for changing choices among both women and men. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we just don't see that much evidence of that among women. But again, it's, it's a lab, it's a short term, you don't know this other person. Uh, so it's possible that that and other non-monetary things are important and effective outside the lab and we just haven't, haven't quite nailed it in terms of design. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm wondering in the lab experiment, if it's more likely that women would have an incentive to not disappoint their sponsor <coughs> and be less likely to take risks, is that possible? Yeah, it's, it's possible. So again, it's, it's all anonymous. So the extent to which someone can sort of look at you and say, I'm so disappointed in you, is really minimal. Um, but remember that sort of if you don't choose to compete, your sponsor gets nothing for you for sure. So they don't get your piece rate payment. They only get your payment if you compete. But it could be the case, again, highly anonymous, but you can imagine a story where this is true, where um, if I choose to compete and I'm successful, they're going to know how many problems I did, sort of, right? And so I could completely self-sabotage and not compete or not you know, compete and then not do well just so they don't find out sort of how many problems I solved. I think that's unlikely to be the case in our environment, partly because there's so much privacy and anonymity. Um, and in particular, if the sponsor gets paid for this round, they're going to get earnings from lots of their protégés, and it's going to arrive as sort of a lump sum. Um, but that could certainly be relevant in other environments where sort of uh, the ability of your sponsor to sort of check in on you and know exactly how you're doing is much larger. Um, and, and that could be an important force. Yeah. So um, what I'm thinking is um, this, this experiment, this whole setting relies on a structure where you do this round one, two, three, four, mm -hmm. and the participants don't know what the rules are going to be for the next round. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm really curious about is what difference it makes if they were, it would make if they were informed, if they knew what was coming, if they kind of understood the whole structure, and maybe even the results from previous rounds. I mean, one of the things that's come up here. Um, you know, Arison mentioned, you know, women in negotiations over their jobs. If you don't know what the rule set is, if you're not familiar with this, mm -hmm. your, your behavior and your, you know, performance are affected by that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that could certainly be the case. I mean, this is a, too much of an experimental economist answer, right? So we're going to try and hold all of that constant across treatments and look at the incremental effect of the sponsorship holding that fix, right? The fact that right. everything's a right. surprise. Yeah. Um, but that isn't to say that if we did it under a different set of information where you knew this was coming, you had more time to deliberate, you're receiving more feedback about your performance, that all of those things might change how people behave. It might change how people behave in ways that vary across treatment. And you know, we definitely can't rule that out. Um, the nice thing here is that 
by sort of keeping every stage a surprise, we can sort of treat each, each stage as a sort of an independent and clean sort of measure of what we want. Um, and when people are sort of loading things on top of each other instead, you know, things become, begin to rely on each other in a way that's sort of interesting in mirroring the complexity of the word, but much harder for me to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. So I mean, like everything, there, there are trade-offs. Um, so it seemed like sure. a reasonable place to start, but yeah, I think that would yeah. be a, a nice thing to sort of open up going forward. Right, let me show you a few more results, and then I, I hope we'll have more time for questions, too. Um, okay, so I, I'm going to end there on the competitiveness side of things, right? So I, I think I've hopefully shown you that sponsorship works, but it works for overconfident men and lower ability men, right? At least the form of sponsorship that we're providing. Um, so one sort of interesting thing to come out of this is that uh, competitiveness is not operating in isolation to determine payoffs. It also matters how you actually perform. Right, so I think it would be a, a reasonable hypothesis to say performance might change under sponsorship as well. Right? Even holding fixture choices, now if you do well in the payment tying channels, you're generating money not only for yourself, but for someone else in the lab. Right? So we've made it more profitable for the group as a whole to have high performing people actually perform well. So if there's room to increase performance, if you can sort of try harder or try smarter in some ways, maybe we'll see people actually respond in terms of performance. And what we see here, right, these, these payment tying channels are the one where there are additional incentives to perform in terms of monetary stuff, the money generating to bosses, um, that it seems to be the case that men are reacting more to these additional channels than the women. Right? So this is performance data. This is additional number of problems solved relative to the problems you solved in round three. Right? Again, norm to this control treatment. So performance for women is maybe increasing a little bit relative to round three, Performance for men in the two payment tying treatments are increasing significantly. Right? So now we can sort of revisit the, the having a good laugh at the underconfident low ability men, right? Because they're choosing to compete, but now they're also amping up their performance, right? And, and maybe turning it into a semi profitable decision, at least for some of them. And, and that's kind of what we see. So we're going to look lastly at these earnings, right? It's a really natural combination of your choices and performance. Okay. And we're going to ask whether, in some ways, this is the punchline, is sponsorship actually increasing earnings or decreasing the gender gap in earnings? So this is the change in earnings by treatment. And you'll see that even though we sort of laughed at those men, right, their earnings are actually increasing. That's mostly being driven by this improved performance. Right? So, so they're performing better, so they're roughly earning more money. The standard error bars in these are huge. Right? So none of this is really, you know, I, I wouldn't draw too meaningful conclusions. I'll, I'll show you p-values on the next slide. The only thing that's really going to turn out to be significant is these payment tying men are earning significantly more than they were in round three. So Katie, is it a reasonable interpretation that the men we're calling the overconfident low ability are actually not low ability and roughly appropriately calibrated? They were just lazy in the early rounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Yeah, so, um, now again, like, you know, at the individual level, there's a lot of variation, but yes, it seems like for some part of this male population, uh, but which is weird, right? I, I don't want to say that they were properly calibrated because we're asking you in round three, what's your quartile going to be? And if they knew they were going to slack, right. they probably should have told us they were going to slack. That's not what they say. They say, I'm going to be in the top quartile. So, 
So maybe they're answering their question because they're sort of used to being in the top four. Top yeah, level. so so that could be true, right? I, I think I can get by without trying my hardest or something right. like or, that. Or, or, or the alternative is that they improve with each round because they're getting more practice and we see a larger variation in the men in the sample than the women. I mean, that's so, an alternative there. So that part is normed out by this unsponsored treatment. So all of this is relative to the changes we're seeing in that, that fourth control arm. Um, so yes, I, I agree that that could be part of it, but we're differencing out that yeah. part. So whatever additional thing is coming is coming on top of that um, and seems to be a reaction to the actual intervention. Okay, so um, the only thing, again, that, that was actually significant, right, is that men's earnings are increasing significantly in the payment tying treatment. Nearly all of this is explained by the improved performance, not by making sort of smarter choices. Um, and women's earnings aren't significantly impacted by any of the treatments. So just wrapping up and leaving a few minutes for conclusions, I think our takeaway from this is in the lab, the version of sponsorship we provide has sort of unintended effects. So uh, it impacted the men more than the women and encouraged even more competitive choices among the men, particularly among sort of these overconfident lower ability men, at least as measured by sort of their performance up through the intervention. And as a result, sponsorship in the lab failed to close the gender gap in competitiveness or earnings. Um, so importantly, I don't think the conclusion for this paper is, you know, sponsorship doesn't make sense. It's that we're not studying the part of sponsorship that seems to really matter for women, right? And, and so something else is going on. If sponsorship is really effective in the field, and I, I'd like to believe that it is, right, some of these other channels that we're not studying might be first order. Right? So maybe it is, if you go way back to the beginning of this talk, thinking about sort of access to professional networks, um, you know, employee advocacy and these promotion meetings, right? those types of things that are completely absent from our intervention that occur over the course of a longer term interaction might be more important than this sort of transactional feature where we're linking earnings or you're getting this vote of confidence. Um, so I think the next step to think about is both for these channels, might they work differently if we change the environment, right? We're just studying one environment, it's a highly anonymous one. Um, but then also, what are the other features of the sponsorship programs that, that we didn't look at that might actually be particularly important? Uh, so I'll leave it there, and I think we have five more minutes, so I would be happy to take more questions. Yeah. I think that also like a possible read on this is, it, it reminds me a lot, this results when we see certain people in positions of power and say, how is this unskilled person so high? And I think that there might be an issue of where you know competitiveness and self-confidence is able to compensate for lack of initial skill, but then it kind of creates a positive loop where your skills get developed because you have the confidence and the competitiveness to compete even though you should have never in the world done so. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I love this point and I'm actually thinking about this in a project I'm designing now. So if you think about the way we've studied competitiveness in environments like this, right? the setup is clever from an experimental perspective that if you choose to compete, we compare you to everyone else from that previous round. Now that's nice, but it also means that sort of low ability men who choose to compete don't make money from that because they get compared to sort of the rest of the people and it's like, you weren't actually good, you didn't compete. I think if we think about how the world works, like think about applying for a job or a promotion, they don't look at the application and compare you to everyone who didn't apply, right? They look at the application and say, how are you relative to the other options we have? And in that world, 
being sort of low ability relative to the whole group is less important than sort of being relatively high ability among the people who are willing to put it out there, right? And so I think that part of it might be really important that actually we only see the people who choose to put themselves forward, um, and that could lead to the type of outcomes I think you're talking about, where it's like, how did that person get that job? And it's like, oh, because no high ability people actually apply, right? So um, I think that's a really important point and something that we haven't quite studied, that like, these dynamic consequences of if you just keep putting it out there and are the best among people, then all of a sudden you're in a really high position. Um, so I think that's really important. I would be curious to, to see how once, you know, if you do decide to reveal, you do this again, you reveal maybe how the sponsors feel about themselves to the, the person that's sponsoring. And then also the gender, knowing that as a woman, I have another woman mm -hmm. that's my sponsor. Or if a man has a female sponsor, how that might affect them. Yeah, I think that's really important too. And it, if we think about sponsorship in the field, in terms of we saw 19% of firm partners are, are women, so it's likely that most sponsors in the field are men. Um, and so understanding better whether sponsorship is more effective when you're paired on, you know, if we have sort of a homophily effect uh, of sponsors and proteges, whether if that's particularly important, that might be a good thing to know as we're thinking about how to design these things smartly. And, uh, yeah, we don't have any gender stuff here in, in the sense that uh, no one's finding out information about each other's gender or, or able to react to that in some way. Would it be fair to summarize kind of uh, one of your core findings um, in that in your work, sponsorship actually wasn't a vote of confidence as much. That wasn't the main channel of influence. It worked on the already overconfident men, not for the women anyway, but the already updated, so they don't, didn't need that vote. But it worked through kind of the payment, the payment tying. It made those men work harder. Yeah. Um, and so if anything, which is also very counterintuitive, and how the men, now that they know that somebody else benefits from their, their work, they're working harder. So it's not the women who, you know, are kind yeah. of altruistic. But yeah. is it that? But yeah, so uh, I think a, a slight reinterpretation of that is we, we do see that just the vote of confidence treatment works for men too. Mm -hmm. um, and the vote of confidence treatment, if you remember, actually does impact beliefs. It just doesn't impact the choices for women. Uh, so another way to interpret the findings is, imagine I'm going through life looking for excuses to be more competitive, right? And that any excuse to be more competitive is something I'm going to welcome. And for men, both the payment tying and the vote of confidence are that excuse, right? Well, oh, I, I should actually be competing a little bit more, right? And so if you're sort of on the lookout for reasons to do that, maybe all of these things are equally effective because it's not really about the information content or the incentives, it's that additional just little tap on the shoulder that says like, maybe you might want to compete more and they react to that. So now that's just an interpretation of the data, there are other ones you could come up with. Um, but in some ways I find that story compelling, right, that it's not about what the structure of the actual incentives or environment are, it's just this like, pop-up reminder like, oh, I could actually be even more competitive if I wanted to. Um, so. so you guys can see for, for men, it could be even a smaller amount. I don't know, a smiley face, whatever. So <laughs> yeah. oh, why don't you compete? I, and potentially, I'm just making this up, but potentially, that's my what you're saying. My hypothesis, off the record, is that that would be just as effective as this stuff okay. for men. But I, I can't back that up. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, interesting. Could it also be giving them an audience? Because you do that with the 
Oh, no, no, no. The payment type, you don't have anybody who sees your performance. It's all random, and, right? Well, and in any of the treatments, you really don't find out about the performance um, because the sponsor is going to have a number of protégés, and even if the coin comes up that you get paid, you're going to get so kind of a lump sum of money. It's really yeah, I mean, you could interpret, uh, like, oh, now the sponsor is, like, counting on me somehow, and that's, that's some form of visibility, but the actual information available to other people in the lab is really, really limited. Yeah, so I'm thinking about the, the um, stereotype threat studies mm -hmm. and the fact that this was arithmetic and that, you know, they, they've, it's been demonstrated that if you start women with statements, like women always do very well in this type of competition, they actually perform better. Yeah. And I'm just wondering whether, in fact, that, um, you know, the confidence gap, right, which, you, which is really, you know, very pronounced here, whether in fact some of the, this is m maybe muddying some of the other um, questions around it. Yeah, so, so thinking about, um, I mean, so we don't prime them with any gender information or anything, so I, I don't think of us as activating stereotype threat, at least in the, the classic study sense of stereotype threat. Um, but it's possible that they bring beliefs about math ability into the lab with them and those are relevant and we haven't done anything to turn that off. Um, now again, that's present across all the treatments. So whatever impact that has, we're sort of norming that out by comparing over and over again to this unsponsored treatment. Um, but it's possible that if we did some sort of uh, neutralization of the stereotype threat part and provided them information or used a, a female type task rather than a male type task, that we could flip these results on their head. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have the data to, to say that, but I think it's, it's certainly a plausible hypothesis. Well, we hope we get to see a lot more of your research. Thank you. So next week, actually, I'm seeing I'm on. <laughs> so um, we'll do uh, gender and negotiation. Very cool. Yay.